Frank, can you guess what I purchased? Ooh, ooh. Oh, wait. Oh, that sound. Oh my God, that sound, James. You know, I was just at the Living Computer Museum, so I actually know that sound. That is a 1980s keyboard. Why would you buy a keyboard from the 1980s? Well, you know, it was a glorious time in the 1980s. There was a lot of great individuals being born around that time, especially around 1986. (laughs) So, you know. I can't think of any, but we'll just assume that there were. (laughs) So you got some kind of passion for the old clickety-click, huh? You you fell to the ideas of the internet saying that these keyboards with their like eight-inch key travel is somehow superior to modern keyboards. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, uh, you know, all the cool kids have the mechanical keyboards, and I was watching this YouTube video of like, hey, great products under 50 bucks, and... I was like, hey, you know, I'm kind of sick of this Bluetooth keyboard. Let's give this a go. And what I like about the mechanical keyboard that I have, it's from Techware. It's the Phantom RGB backlit mechanical keyboard. I am pro backlight. I love backlight. And especially I think if if I'm imagining, are these like the really like rainbowy ones? Is it programmable? Yes. (laughs) That's the best part. Right now, whenever I tap on a key, it, it like lights up based on that key and like does sparkling effects throughout, but you can have it just do rainbows and waves and sine waves and <laughs> ramble and rave if you want to. That's the best part of it, to be honest. This is the end of programmer civilization right here. When we obsess. No, I take that back. I think we're all in this business because we all obsess over hardware if we think about it really hard. So I'm not going to make fun of you and just compliment you on your clickety clickety clickety. Aren't you? Darn, okay. The rainbow I love, but don't you think you're going get annoyed with the eight inch key travel well so far yes <laughs> so <laughs> this is my i bought the i bought the browns the, the the cherry browns i don't know what that means but they're this one's supposed to be the in-between where it's not as clicky as it could be but i will say it is very different to type on this keyboard because the keys are very large and the key travel is very high. Now that is not my podcasting keyboard because I hope not. I don't want to type on the keyboard and then make large sounds, but it is my programming keyboard. So we'll see when I do some Twitch streaming um, on Friday, if people love or hate it. And I have to go back to my low key travel where the, the, the keys are so thin Um, That it doesn't, you can't even feel it basically. So we'll see. I'm going to make a prediction here and say it's going to be good for Twitch, actually. You know how like all the movies make the boopity beep sound when people are working on a computer? I think it's a more natural version of that. So I think it's actually going to work. I think just characters coming in out of the blue is kind of weird. And I think having that click associated with each one. So it's either going to be annoying, but I don't think it's going to be annoying. But this is all hilarious because I'm on a Mac keyboard that like has, you know, billionth of a millimeter worth of travel for each key (laughs) so like in the mac world we've been getting tighter and tighter and the pc world's been getting clickier and clickier so james i was reading the tweeters and a tweeter came up and i think if i'm reading this right you are betraying us james i accuse you do you want to hear your uh, accusation (laughs) yeah bring it bring it i need to know All right. One tweeter out there named Brady Gaster (laughs) says that today he learned that James Montemagno changed his mind about dependency injection and inversion of control as he observed the magical future of, well, Condrong. It's a funny name, huh? But James, 
what's going on here? Dependency injection, inversion of control? Didn't, weren't we just talking for 8 million episodes that we, we don't like those? Yes, for 145 episodes, Frank, nearly three years, it's all been a lie. Little did you know that deep down in my heart, I actually love now. Um, so, okay, let me, let's, let's break this down because even okay. you and I, before doing the podcast, were a little bit like there's DI, there's like service locators, there's IOC, there's constructor injection, there's all of these things, you know, out yeah. there. And even I get confused on what I love and what I don't love. So how do you interpret dependency injection and inversion of controls? Because those are two different things. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into some definitions here. <laughs> but I think the last time we talked about this, we both agreed that we both like services. So maybe we should kind of start with that concept. So uh, in inversion of control, instead of putting all the logic to, say, make HTTP requests or uh, you know do this or that services, things that uh, business logic, big things that your app needs to do, and you have some layer between your UI and that. Well, you cannot put that logic all into uh, like your code behind, or you can refactor it out. And if you refactor it out into services, you can um, make use of those in your own classes. That is a terrible explanation, but that's how I think an inversion of control is I'm refactoring out things into services, and then I have one class that's kind of joining them together to do something useful. Yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, that yeah. was bad. <laughs> can no, you, can no, you clean I mean, that up a little? <laughs> the, the, the entirety of it, sometimes it comes from interface-based programming where you may have mm -hmm. sort of that code broken out. I like to think of it as, here's my you know web backend service, but maybe I have a mock service. They both implement the same interface. And I want a way to say, give me one of these things that I have created and I will use it. So your code behind, yeah, it doesn't know about the thing. It just knows that it's going to get a thing and use the thing. And these service locators, we like to say, usually have the option to get back the same instance of it. So you don't have to new up new things all the time. And that's one thing that's nice with the end goal being, I can easily say, I can change the code in this one little thing or swap it out with a new implementation and the rest of my code doesn't have to worry about it. That's kind of the goal, I think. Yeah, and that's um, the second part of what you said there was the dependency injection. So forever, um, I've broken my app up into services. And kind of naturally, you do interfaces just because, well, honestly, I usually like write a really bad version of the service at first. <laughs> uh, some people call those testing versions or mock versions. I call it I'm just kind of being lazy, and I'll, I'll fill in the details later. And so you naturally like break these things break these things out into interfaces and that helps for testability and everything. But the real, uh, um, the second issue is, okay, if it's a bunch of interfaces, well, someone's actually got to create some objects. So who's responsible for creating the objects? If your code behind creates the objects, then it's locking in the type and we don't want to lock in the type. We want to use interfaces. We want to be flexible with the actual object that gets created. And that's why we have what you were calling a service locator. There are so many names for this. I think container was one of the original names. Yeah. Yeah. Container, service locator, um, dependency service. Uh, that's the Xamarin yeah. Forms version of it. These all are very simplistic, uh, usually. Some are more heavier <laughs> because, some, yeah. you know, at the simplistic form, you could say, here is this class. 
And when I want this class back, create a new version of this class. Yeah. And give it to me. Yeah. And it, it's funny, like, uh, when I would do this myself, I always thought, why would I use someone else's container or object or something like that? But what eventually occurred to me was that this dependency injection's not actually so simple. You can very easily have... A that depends on B that depends on C and oopsie doopsie, I made C depend on A. <laughs> now your program can get very complicated and resolving that dependency graph is not trivial. And that's why even though I'm totally a not invented here person, I tend to use other people's uh, code if I do dependency injection. But maybe we should get back to um, in the past, i I haven't used it that much, to be honest. I've used it in Xamarin Forms, and I've used it in ASP.NET. How about you? Yeah, so when it comes to that inversion of control service locator model dependency service, I naturally enjoy using that model. I think that the what I've always liked about doing interface-based programming was the swappability, or even if you're not using it, just saying like, give me this thing and I can reuse it. A good, a good use case would be like a logger, right? I, I have a logger. I might have multiple types of loggers. Give me the logger that I want, you know, and I can change that implementation. And you want to use that same logger all over the place. And using the service locator or dependency service model, you in the past would basically say, public static logger, new up your logger, and then that's static everywhere. And you don't want a static everywhere. You don't want to new it up. So this thing just says, hey, I can at any time, anyone could be creating a different logger and I'll just get that back from me. So I've been in favor of that simple model as long as the platform itself supports it or it has it built in. So when I did core iOS or Android work, I don't believe that I really ever use anything that was from iOS or Android. I believe if I go back in time, there was a very, very old standard service locator that someone on the Xamarin team wrote once, and I copied and pasted that code into every single one of my projects. And it it didn't do anything. It, it just did like, here's a class, give me the class, or here's the interface for the class. It didn't do anything else, right? It did the bare minimum. And that's what I liked. So was it all singletons then? It was all singletons. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's what originally kind of turned me off actually from dependency injection. Um, I come from the old school of we don't like singleton objects. Every object should have a direct pointer to the thing it's doing and you shouldn't be looking to the global namespace. And that's what we're talking about here. We're creating a global namespace for objects. Yep. And so, there, you know, we use that term like code smell. It wasn't like a code smell to me. It just, I felt dirty though. I totally did. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just because this concept um, of this global namespace bothered me. But then um, when you think about how you, in practice, actually implement it, the most common pattern you see is um, I, have a, I have an object that has some dependencies. And in the constructor of that object, I just list out all the dependencies in the form of, I have an argument for every dependency and every one of those dependencies is most likely an interface. Doesn't have to be an interface, but probably an interface. Uh, and then in the constructor, that's when you ask the container or service to um, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> you can either uh, have the service create one of those for you, or, and this is the part that made me feel like it's not singletons anymore, you can just create it yourself in that class in like a default constructor. It can be a field. It can even be a property. So you could uh, swap it out later. And I think that's what finally convinced me. It's although by default, we keep making things singletons and globals. It really is just a default. And if I'm, if I want, I can override it in each object. Yeah, there you go. That makes sense. I, I use the, the Xamarin forms one kind of added on to that one. They have a dependency service and they, I like to call it an MVP. So like minimal viable product for a dependency service, which gives you ability to register those things manually. You can also do ex assembly exports, which will do assembly scanning, which is kind of nice, but may have some overhead. Um, yeah. not really sure either way. They're, it's really quick though. I know that the assembly standing is, or, um, what you can do is when you get that thing back, you can say, give me the singleton version of it or create a new version of it for me. It's not giving you maybe the flexibility as much as what you're saying, but it's somewhere in between. And I started to use that because it's built into the framework. Like that was one thing that I always appreciated. You said about ASP.net or Xamarin forms where it's part of the framework where if you're doing, you know, normal like desktop development or even Android or iOS, it's not, you have to go find another package. And this is where the auto facts, the unities, the, the prisms and the MVVM and the MEFs and the all the things come in and I'm not against them, right? I love, I love everything, maybe not math, but like, I love everything, but you know, and, and for me, it was, I don't want to have to go all in on a framework, um, that I don't control or is, you know, or maybe not stamped with an approval, but it, like, it's very good. Like Prism's amazing. And MVVM cross is great too, but I didn't want to go all in just for this little piece of functionality where I'm like, oh, I could just write that myself or grab something where I was against some of the stuff because it wasn't built into the framework. And I always thought that these bigger ones did more than that, which they went off and they started doing all of the other things such as constructor injection and these other kind of high level or kind of high level crazy abstractions where you weren't really sure where the code was going, where you could run into issues. So I tried to keep it simple. And I think that's where some of my mind may have been changed as of recent, Frank. Yeah. Um, I don't want to pick on any of these, but I'm, I, no, I take that back. I'm going to totally pick on meth <laughs> just mm. for a few minutes, though. <laughs> um, I have a little experience with it. When you uh, build Visual Studio extensions, you're almost always dealing with meth. Uh, um, what does it stand for, James? M-E-F. What are we saying? The Microsoft uh, Extensibility Framework. Oh, Wow. So that's what it means. I don't even know. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. The managed extensibility framework, MEF. Ooh, you were very close that first time. Close. Nice work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I always had trouble with it. It could never find my assemblies. The logs it produced were very uh I couldn't find them. I didn't know how to use them. And so like you would try to create an object and be like, haha, I can't create the object. And you're like, but why? But why, MEF? Why won't you create the object? So I think um as I said before about the graph and you have to detect loops and all these things, it actually isn't easy to write these things general purpose. And the devil really is in the details. How well do they log? You know, um, how well can you diagnose problems with them? And I think that that's, 
that's kind of what scared me off a bit from dependency injection too, was that I didn't want to deal with this crazy mystery of where are you looking for my objects. Mm. But I think in the mobile world where we have limited scope of assemblies, as in like on iOS, I ship my app with these assemblies. I cannot add to that list. Yeah. Um, it's it's a more practical model, honestly, because now it's a fixed set of assemblies. I know exactly what it's where it's looking, what it's looking for, and all that. But I also want to talk about that startup performance. Can we take a little detour? Yeah, yeah, go for it. And that was so there was these other concerns before I go into my new love and passions. I think you're right there. My concerns were not only maybe I don't know where things are coming from, like where code mm -hmm. readability, as I like to call it, who's where is this coming from? Just knew it up, right? Yeah. That's what I said. Just knew it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but also, yeah, the the startup time for a mobile application is very different than a web server or uh, a desktop application where you're using a full 32 gigs of RAM and a crazy horsepower, right? That That's what I always thought was yet the other main negative part of it. Yeah, a web server starts up once and handles thousands of requests, or millions of requests. So you don't really care about startup performance over there. But on iOS and Android, we care a whole lot. And I think... Um, Xamarin Forms has always gotten a little bit of flack for startup performance. It's not large, but it is scanning all the assemblies and looking for things. I think uh, things have improved there, too, where you can minimize what it scans for and control that. Um, but the fun thing is, if you're using like a third-party one or you have your own whole big set of objects that you want to create, you can be very clever and do things like just new it up from the beginning, your your root uh, objects, your root UI, and then asynchronous do like the assembly scans and, you know, resolve all the dependencies and do that all in the background. So you can still get a UI up very quickly if you just new it up, as we say, you know, don't use the dependency service, just new the objects up yourself uh, and then lazily go scan for everything and build that dependency graph. Yeah, well, I want to talk about sort of the new hotness that I've come to light, which won't be new for many people building ASP.NET apps, but let's first take a break, Frank, and thank our amazing sponsor this week, Telerik. Listen, the team over at Telerik Progress over there, they're doing awesome things. They obviously have great controls for nearly any single platform out there, whether it's mobile or web or Xamarin applications, but they are building, Frank, the Telerik UI for Blazor. What? Blazor gets all the love. I love this. Tell me more, James. Yes, well, it's an early preview, but the Telerik UI for Blazor is going to give you a rich set of web UI components specifically designed for Blazor. So you can run these puppies right in the browser, giving you rich web interfaces rather than C Sharp or in C Sharp rather than JavaScript. So you can get these components and they've been built from the ground up with tight integration into Blazor as it evolves. So you can get it today if you're using Blazor. Now you're saying like, well, I'm not writing Blazor apps just yet. Well, what else can I do? Well, like I said, they have things for not only just web, but for Blazor and of course, Xamarin. They have all sorts of amazing controls for Xamarin, iOS, Android, and UWP, making your apps look super professional and modern. And of course, they just released a brand new PDF viewer control, new pop-up controls and a doc layout control. It's super great all compatible with Visual Studio 2019. So go give that a look. Head over to Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com, 
Telerik.com. Thanks to Telerik Progress for sponsoring this episode of Merge Conflict. That is super awesome. Thanks, Telerik. It's it's great to see component vendors kind of doing bleeding edge stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super great to see just boom, day one, good to go. And Blazor's not even out yet, right? It's just like, oh, yeah. and we got early previews. Like, that's great. I, I'm going to need that stuff. And it's good to see it. That's a good sign for Blazor, I think. So, um, yeah. Well, I had messed around a lot with Blazor, but I had recently be, recently been talking with the ASP.NET core team, Frank. And this is where the trouble started. You are betraying us, James. You went from mobile, now you're talking to web developers? Scary. So it all started with SignalR, Frank, and I love SignalR. <laughs> yeah, okay. I see where this rabbit hole began. <laughs> and then it kind of came down to talking about some SignalR stuff and then talking about ASP.NET. And then my good friend Glenn, who was in this tweet, and Brady, we were together. And and Glenn was talking about some new stuff he was working on, which I can't talk about. I was like, oh, that's really cool. I don't know if it really applies to mobile. And he goes, but does any of this other stuff apply to mobile? And I go, oh, I, I don't know. And I said, you know, one thing that I've loved about ASP.NET Core, and maybe you hate it or maybe you love it, is with ASP.NET Core, they really force you all, you're, they're all in on this thing called like web host, this host builder type concept where ASP.NET Core, everything is going to be handled for you. Logging, dependency injection, configuration, HTTP clients. It's just going to do it all for you. Frank, you're you're familiar with this concept. They're all in. Yeah, for sure. Um, and did this come with Core? I think it did. And it, how I think of it is configuration in code. Instead of having very complicated JSON files of do this, do that, you set up your services, you declare your dependencies, and you do that all in these kind of like startup or I guess they're configuration files. I forget what they call them. It's either in program CS or startup CS. But mm -hmm. all you're doing is basically informing some system that here are all the services that I want to use. Here's how to configure them. Here's how to create the dependencies. Now, you can also still have configuration files, but mostly the idea is configuration and code. You are create, declaring that dependency graph in code. Yeah, and it's pretty nice, I would say, overall, is like, here are my controllers, here's my routing, here's the the things I want to add. So you can say, you know what, to this app, add MVC and add Swagger support and add logging and add HTTP client factory, for instance. And HTTP client factory is where this conversation began because uh, HTTP client factory, you might be able to describe it better, but HTTP client does a bunch of stuff and also allows you to handle like caching and retries and, and logging and all this stuff extra. But HTTP client factory, which is part of ASP.NET and part of this hosting configuration, just does that all for you. Is that correct, Frank? Uh, yeah, uh, but I think that there are even bigger performance benefits to it than just that. And this is something I learned uh, on Fugit, and it was actually a PR from someone, and I didn't know this, and I learned it in the PR. <laughs> and mm. I actually had to ask them to explain it to me. I think my first comment was, wow, this is a lot of code. What, what the heck is this for? <laughs> okay, so the idea here, and this is where my confusion came from. We have this object or this class called HTTP client, and that's what we do to go talk to a server and all that. And coming from kind of the database world, like the ADO.NET world, I just 
assumed that HTTP clients pooled connections and did fancy stuff and all that. Like, I thought I could just new up 8,000 of these and it would just be intelligent about how it allocated sockets and all of that. Well, it turns out it's not, <laughs> James. HTTP client is basically going to open a socket for everything that you do with it. And so the real way that you want to get um, connection pooling is to use the uh, factory. That it, What was it called? HTTP client factory or just HTTP factory? I think HTTP client factory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the trick is you want to use that puppy. And whenever you want a client, you just ask it for one. And that way it can actually do proper connection pooling. And this was super nice. Um, it meant that um, it turns out uh, Fugit.org does a lot of HTTP requests. That's basically <laughs> what it's spending all its time doing. If you ever get a slow page load, just know that it's downloading half of the internet in order to render that page. And so I, I think it was good because... Um, you can easily run out of resources if you don't use connection pooling. Yeah. And, and as I, that was the main question I had for Glenn, as I said, you know, one question I get all the time is how can I use that in my mobile apps? Cause that seems pretty good. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, we, we definitely need that in our mobile apps. So in the past, I, I would just use Apple APIs, but obviously that's not going to help you if you're on Android or UWP. Yeah, so I'm like, I want all of this stuff that is ASP.NET is getting. How do I get that? And he goes, oh, that that's interesting. He's like, we have this thing called the generic host builder. And I go, okay, what do you mean? He's like, well, ASP.NET has a web builder and there's this thing called the generic host builder. It's part of a magical library called Microsoft Extensions Hosting. Hmm. Oh, right. So we were talking about this a little bit before, and you gave me a little bit of background. And the most interesting thing that I found was you told me that this is basically what I thought was ASP.NET code, all this service configuration, all that. You're like, no, dude, it's actually just a .NET standard library. You can use this anywhere. <laughs> it totally is. That's what the, Now, I will say that I'm not 100% sure if it's perfectly out of the box going to work amazing for every little <laughs> thing, which uh, I've been doing a lot of testing and it almost does, but it, there's a few quirks in mono, but um, for iOS and Android, but I've, we've, I think I'm going to be really working with Glenn to smooth this over. But here's the cool thing about host builder is that it's just a .NET standard library. It's sort of like all of the cool, crazy things that uh, ASP.NET gets, but without having that dependency on ASP.NET. So it says that, uh, that in general, it's decoupled from the entire HTTP pipeline that web host provides, but it gives you things such as configuration, dependency service, and logging. Now it does say in general, in the documentation that it isn't suitable for web hosting scenarios because you'd want to use web hosts. Well, I'm a mobile app. I'm not <laughs> web hosting. So this is going to be great. So we started to experiment with this and on my GitHub, you can find a bunch of my little projects recently that I've been pushing code to. And I said, well, can I use this? How do I get HTTP client factory into my app? And Glenn and I figured out that, well, how it works is you have to create a host builder, configure your service, add the HTTP client factory NuGet package and use 
dependency injection <laughs> and constructor injection to actually get it to work. Because give in to the dark side, James, give in. <laughs> get, you, you have to give in to the dark side to get it. And I said, all right, Glenn, all right, let's give it a go. Uh, I love this story. <laughs> he said, let's, he said, if you want it, you got to go this round. I said, oh, I really want it though. Right? I want to be able to get access to that. And he said, so, well, you know, you can't new it up. You got to go this route. That's what he said. <laughs> you can't new it up? No. <laughs> uh, I want to paint a picture. I, I hope uh, a lot of listeners have seen kind of like your boilerplate ASP.NET configuration. There's always just a few lines that always make it there. And so when you first showed me this code, I'm, and, and I looked at the initialization, I'm like, are you running a web server in here? Because it looked like you were running ASP.NET. And I'm like, why are you running ASP.NET in a mobile app? This makes no sense. And you're like, no, dude, it's just the configuration stuff. And, <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Uh, so you're doing a few things. You're setting up your dependency graph. You have just a, one service, I think, so far. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. And then you set up logging because... We all need a logging abstraction. We're all tired of console.write line. It, mm -hmm. It's great at first, but eventually you want to persist those logs and do fancy things. I am sad to see that you had to disable console colors in your log. Yeah. It's tragic, James. Tragic. I know. What are we going to do without console colors? Well, you know, I, Visual Studio and Visual Studio for Mac don't support it. So I know. What's wrong with them? <laughs> that is a problem. That needs to be fixed. I think I need to put in a, we need to get that. Actually, I think it's a little it's a, issue. I'm not sure if the iOS logger, which is what Xamarin uses, I'm not sure that supports it. So uh, like it, it might not even be worth it. They might have to do some nasty hacks. Uh, but you set it up uh, and this is another interesting part. So I said that a lot of this is your configuration via code. So you could like have if statements and all that. You could actually have logic setting all this up. But you also load a JSON file. James. Yeah. Explain yourself. Yeah. So in, in the normal ASP.NET route, they have the ability to set some default properties for either development or production, uh, such as, you know, configuration keys or other properties. And maybe you want to have in development mode, use these logging settings. So what's cool is that when you load this, they call it a host configuration, mm -hmm. this host configuration looks for a bunch of default keys. So one of the keys that I have inside of here is environment and it's called development, but there's a logging and that logging will tell it to log everything because I'm in development. I mean, you can change those things. Those are, those are the ones that the system looks for, but you can add any random key. So I have hello world and you can load this JSON file and it will then override the defaults of if it's the key that it recognizes, uh, or it will just add those key values into a dictionary for you that you can use at any time. So that's nifty where you may want to have some keys or you want to have some specific, you know, um, true or false values that you don't want to hard code. And maybe you want to swap that out at, um, build time, for instance, you can do that. So I load this configuration and since I load the configuration, and I'm telling it that it's development, there's this really cool thing called that uh, called hosting environment. So once I load the host configuration, I have access to this hosting environment. And then I can say, am I in development? Am I in production? And then I don't have to write my own custom logic to determine what values to use 
you know, for all intensive purposes, which is kind of cool. You don't have to use it, but it's there anyways. Yeah, I, I like this a lot, though. Um, I think that's one place where the, the web programmers are actually beating us a little bit is they do have a very distinct concept between dev environments and release environments. And yeah. so this coming from the web world, it's pretty hard baked in this concept of being able to split the world up like that or change things out. And I appreciate that because what I currently do right now is if I want to split those two worlds is I rewrite text files during my build process and it's nasty and ugly. And so this is nice because it's a more formal system. It's kind of a proven system. They've been working with it for a long time. And so I'm actually pretty excited by it. You know, the funny thing is I'm realizing like, these are all pieces that you could have accomplished yourself. Like you can do different solution configurations and in your project file, you can have conditional logic to include this or that and change property values. But that stuff is all outside of code and this is in code. And I think that I just love the elegance of it. Again, it's configuration in code. It's, it's more controllable. It's more logical, honestly. (laughs) It it truly is like, and that's what sort of won me over as I was writing the code. It's like, okay, I'm going to configure this host. I'm going to add a JSON file to it. I'm going to configure my services. How am I configuring it? Well, I'm going to add the HTTP client. I'm going to add a singleton. I'm going to add another singleton. I'm going to configure the logger and then I'm going to build it. And then now that I've configured everything, I build it all up in a builder pattern. And now I have a bunch of services I can access. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and you're like, yeah. oh, that makes some sense. And and what you could do here in the world of in mobile is you could have a conditional to say if debug load the development app settings, if release use the production settings, right? You could easily do that. But that's all in the code where you're saying these are the settings that I'm going to be using it from that JSON file, but the rest could be the same because that JSON file will tell you if you are in development mode or in production or things like that. So that's actually super, super duper nifty. Yeah. And as oh. as I started going down, it, it just made it really nice and easy and readable, like you said. Yeah. And I you were just making me think of another advantage to this having it in code and with logic is you can do hardware and capabilities detection. Uh, so if you're on iOS, it's pretty easy to tell if you're like an iPad or an iPhone. But after that, you're using a lot of different um, API, uh, APIs to go discover functionality. Does this phone support this or not? And you can do that just one time and set up different services for your different things. And so I like that capability also of having that in logic, just a runtime thing. This is stuff you can't predict at compile time. Yeah. And in fact, you may have something that is... Uh, compatible with only newer versions of iOS. So you might have to configure a service that is my older compat, you know, yeah. <laughs> FaceTime, you know, library or, you know, you know, geolocation library. And then here's my new version. And then you would, you could detect that here and configure it accordingly instead of gobbledygooking up a single file with, am I on this thing? Then do this thing and then do this thing and then do that thing. So that might be another advantage to writing it in this, in this way. Yep. And I guess you could apply that to platforms too. Now that now I see why everyone kept yelling at us, but <laughs> I think, okay. So um, we keep saying singletons, but there's other options too. Um, we can, you can register transient services. And these are funny because it's not a global object. Every time you request the service, it's going to give you a new 
new object. So that's nice because um, global objects are fine until you start modifying global state and then you have yeah. race conditions and then you have locking. And so, you know, singletons should be used with care. I really do believe that just because no one knows how to do proper threading, literally no one. So it's an impossible task. And I think um, if you start putting singletons all in your code, uh, it really limits your capabilities for doing multi-threaded stuff. And so I actually do prefer to uh, side on the transients, new objects for every dependency, but it's a perf, it's a perf thing. It's a correctness thing. And you have to judge that on your own. Well, and I started to go down this route and I said, okay, well, the nice thing here is I'll register my main view model as, you know, as a singleton, which, which should be a transient actually, but I will take into the constructor an I logger in this I HTTP client factory. And since everything is all in on this, <laughs> I now get all of that stuff for free. So I get the logger, I get the HTTP client. And since I'm using the logger and I'm using the HTTP client builder, the cool part here is automatically because I'm doing all of this and it all gets figured out all, some magical way for <laughs> me is whenever I make restful service calls or anything with that HTTP client builder class at that factory, mm -hmm. it automatically starts logging things to the council about what calls I'm making, how long is it taking and all these different things. And I didn't have to write any code because it's reusing all of this tech and libraries that are packed into ASP.NET core applications, but inside of my Xamarin app, like mind blown. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, anytime someone gives me free logging, I'm going to take it <laughs> just because it, it just makes debugging so much easier. It, isn't it funny how we always, we rely on logs still to this day. And I just love that, as you said, um, it, it, there's a little bit of magic here, right? Because uh, who, did you know that that library used the iLogger interface? No, but no. it kind of didn't matter. It's a black box. <laughs> Let's not think about it. Uh, yep. But that does uh, raise a little issue that I have is discoverability. Uh, yeah. Now, if you get that package, uh, microsoft.extensions.hosting, did I get that right? Yep, that comes with a bunch of stuff that came with logging and that came with, well, the service provider itself. Uh, but then you had to add another package, um, microsoft.extensions.http, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah, so the trick here is there's not great IDE help here to say like, oh, what other services are out there that I can just go download off of NuGet? Oh boy, I just thought of a new Fugit feature. <laughs> start listing all the nougats that actually have these extensions yeah. but there is that yeah there is that discoverability problem right now at least <laughs> it's true i you know i started to talk to glenn he was like yeah the nice thing here is that there's so many different configuration different extensions that are written by even the community like i said there's a poly one there's like a refit one there's all these other ones that are out there um because they fall into this model and then you could technically technically use them now some people could be creating extensions specifically for ASP.NET and they may not work in, in Xamarin world. And I, there's a few quirks with it, but in, for all intents and purposes, it, it does actually work. Um, I think that's relatively cool in general because I thought, well, what else could I do with it? Right. Which is mm -hmm. I've already made it. So this logger and HTTP client are kind of magical. Like what if I to put all of my pages into the singleton or transient model, right? <laughs> like don't even put my services or put my main view models. Why don't you go all the way up the stack and why don't you just put the entire app into it? <laughs> yeah. So 
This is this is that. where it crosses a line for me a little bit, James, but I get where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. And the reason you did this is because your UI object uses these resources. Technically, yep. your UI object could have just had a view model and the view model could have used the resources, but then your view model is more of a controller, not so much yeah. a view model anymore. So it's yeah. just like, where do you want to draw the line? And you drew the line at my main page uses these services. <laughs> yeah. and therefore, I need someone to provide these services. Therefore, my main page is now a service. Mm. Yes. It's a little viral, we could say. In the same way that async and await is viral, like you put it yeah. into one function, now two functions, now four functions. I think um, very quickly, people's code turns into I everything. <laughs> Every class is I something. I'm like, but where's the code that does stuff? And they're like, well, that's in the I does stuff class. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. The, you know, I. I, I started down this path and I, I thought it would be a, a fun experiment today. Just could, can I do it? That's what I wanted yeah. to see. Can I do yeah. it? And I could do it. Now, would I actually do it? No, I don't think I would actually do no. it. No. Oh, come on. Wait, wait. You just ruined the whole episode. I'm fully on board here and you just throw that out. You're not going to do it? James, you not didn't the, convert? <laughs> no, not the full app. Not the full app ah. and not the, the whole thing. I'm, I'm really on board with quite now. I think I'm now a little bit more on in on for the constructor injection but only because i'm configuring the services that go into it so i'm i'm not passing around a bunch of other services but i'm like i i control these services so i want this to work this way and um, mm-hmm. so i'm not i'm i'm, I'm I'm indecisive, Frank. I don't know. Don't backtrack. Lo- it's a full forward, man. Don't look back. <laughs> I love everything that I did, and I'm I'm still not sure if if I'm like I want to use this all the time or not type of thing. But yeah. I'm pretty amazed that it it just worked. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that I'm probably gonna have to like present this at build or something because it, it's super cool. <laughs> and every ASP.NET developer, every Prism developer rolls their eyes in unison. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It only took me 145 episodes, people, but we did it. I'm on board. Uh, I can't wait to read your code from now on. It's going to be, I does this. I does that. I did it that. <laughs> I think I think that's my little last complaint is my level of laziness where I'm like, oh, man, I got to type out the part in the interface and then go to my implementation class and type that part out. What is this? C++? Do I have header files now? I thought I was using something without header files. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So it's, yeah, I I should stop worrying about how much time I'm wasting typing and focus more on architecture. But you know me, I don't like to over-engineer and sometimes this feels a little bit like over-engineering. Well, the nice thing is that you could pick and choose with this model, right? So you don't necessarily have to use the constructor injection. What you could do is you could just get the service provider and then you can just say, give me the service, you know? Um, And actually let's call that out for just a moment because it actually caught my attention. We keep talking about the service provider as if there's only one of them, but we have a little chicken and egg scenario. Where does the service provider come from? If we we have this thing with all these global objects, well, who's hanging on to those? Who's in control of it? That's the service provider. And I saw that in your application, you re- literally created a public static, <laughs> as in global variable, public static iService provider 
service provider. And yeah, that I means mean, that... I need it. <laughs> so, defend yourself, James. No. <laughs> I, where else are you going to put it? It's in the app. Yeah. It's you got to put it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, But that just gets to the point of you do have this rooted thing. So technically, you could have multiple service providers and things like that. You can create different branches. And I don't know if there are any benefits to that. But... I like that um, the um, framework itself or these libraries, whatever we want to call them, they don't have that global variable. It's still up to you. So you get to make the decision of who can see it, who can control it and all that. I do like that part. So you're not stuck with their choice. Yeah, that's very true. And and this is all very much experimental for me, mostly because I wanted to get the HTTP client factor. That's all I really wanted, Frank, at the end of the day. (laughs) Give me this. So we'll see how I go. But I will... I now going through this experiment gave me a really good um, understanding of how ASP.NET Core works better. So one th- one takeaway, even if you're not building mobile apps, maybe you're building a, a .NET Core console application or any any other application, is you could give this a try, and, and, I'll, and I'll put a link to my my. It's called all extensions. That's what that's what I called it. <laughs> my my GitHub repo. You could give this a try in any application and just sort of test it out to understand this model of development uh, if you're new to it. Because the one thing that I've always said, a lot of people say, James, why don't you use Prism and why don't you use, or MVVM Lite, and why don't you use these other things? And I go, the reason I don't use them is because it's not part of the frame. It's not in the box. And a new developer coming in, looking at my code, has to go now learn a whole new thing. Yeah, yeah. And it feels, I when Microsoft has a library, I get you, it feels so much more official, it feels so much more taken care of. But we should point out that this is Microsoft.extensions, not system.extensions. So True. it's definitely still um, a Microsoft control thing and is not a part of the framework per se that said i think everyone that sees microsoft dot and is like wow it's a part of the framework <laughs> yeah especially it's if it's a net standard library and it's uh the license is apache so pretty much open source yeah pretty much open source so there you go and yeah. it's not too big if i can say one more thing that i've never liked about these libraries i think one of our things is like i don't want to pull in two megabytes of code for dependency injection and i don't know what this thing totals to but it's just um, like five or six little 30 kilobyte assemblies so it's not big at all it's nice and probably linked out if you're not using all the stuff bingo bango should be good yeah it's tricky for this they all use reflection it's always tricky to uh <laughs> link out all these dependency injectors another complaint of mine <laughs> <laughs> that is true i'm very curious how it works with the i've only tested it in debug so i haven't tested it with or without the linker so i'm very interested i should say about how that works so again yeah just trying a bunch of stuff (laughs) you'll most likely want to set your app to not link out your own code at the very least i I think the library could survive it but definitely not your own code yeah totally oh yes that's very true yeah where where does that code come from who knows it's gone (laughs) the linker says you weren't using this code so your whole class is gone whoops (laughs) It boots up to a white screen. How lovely. That's, that's oh, what my perfect. app is. <laughs> lovely. Thanks, Linker. All right. Well, there but you go, got Frank. got good logging, James. Good logging for that got white good, screen. <laughs> got good logging. That's all that matters. So cool. All right. We did it. We did oh, it. What a milestone. So now we're going to get all the tweets. 
Okay, everyone, please tweet us. Make sure you you make James pay for 140-something episodes of bashing dependency injection and then us doing this episode. It's very true. People are going to either love or hate this episode. And if you loved it or hate it or just want to make fun of me, like Frank said, go ahead and tweet at us, Merge Conflict FM. You can tweet at me directly at James Montemagno at Proclarum over there. Uh, you can, of course, follow the show on the internets at mergeconflict.fm or, or check out um, any of your favorite podcast apps. You can just hit subscribe, tell your friends about it. It's good. People like the show. We love you. We love reviews. We get those, which is super duper rad. Um, and we like to read those back. So if uh, you're around, you want to give us a little love, give us a give us a little review. We would love that. But I think that's going to do it for this week's Dependency Injected Podcast. I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.